So one way I picked up conversational English at a young age was watching 90s television situational comedies. Some of my favorites taught the importance of family. One of them was Family Matters, featuring the Winslow family, and a smart but annoying neighbor named Steve Urkel. Another one was Full House, and it's about a widower getting much-needed help raising his three daughters. And as a latchkey kid growing up in a broken home, I appreciated these depictions of the American family, even if they were fictional. But now that I think of it, I needed more biblical images and examples of the ideal family, more than what the media was giving me. Though I have to say, uh, there were many more family-friendly shows back then. Things have changed a lot in three decades. Thankfully, God's word doesn't change. And even if our views on family change drastically, and today's passage in Malachi 2, 10 to 16, is one of those passages that tells us what went wrong with families, but also reminds us that God wants his people to enjoy the blessings of marriage and parenting. Let's turn there now. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 674. 674. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord, Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This is the third of six oracles in Malachi. In the first oracle, the Lord answered the question of Israel, In what way have you loved us? The second oracle addressed the sins of the priests. In it, God showed special concern for his reputation. Now, in this third oracle, there's some continuation of ideas from the previous one. 
there's the mention of the altar of the Lord in verse 13. That's where the priests kindled the fire and offered defiled food, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 7 and 10. You see that repeated line, says the Lord of hosts, in verse 16, as before. But there are also some unique features of the third oracle. Betrayal is the main theme here. With the exception of two verses, 12 and 13, in each and every other verse, you see that verb deal treacherously. The word is used in all kinds of relationship contexts, human to human, and human to God. But most interesting are those instances where one's unfaithfulness to God's closely tied to one's unfaithfulness to a spouse. Jeremiah 3.20 is an example. It says, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so, you have, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Yet marital infidelity is not just an illustration to describe our broken relationship with God. Israelites in Malachi's days literally cheated on their wives as a means to cheat on God. Dissatisfied with the Lord, they were dissatisfied with their spouses. It's adulterous idolatry or idolatrous adultery. And not too long ago, Ezra dealt with this intermarriage problem. He pulled out his own hair, led the people to repentance, and they put away their pagan wives. Nehemiah faced the same problem, but he pulled out their hair. He made them swear, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations... There was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. That we then hear of your your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women. That's Nehemiah 13. Now after Ezra and Nehemiah, it's Malachi's turn to speak against intermarriages, which were both betrayals of God and their wives. Besides this common thread of treachery running through these verses, some structural markers are there. In verse 13, you have the natural break, and this is the second thing you do. That allows for contrast of verses 10 to 12 with verses 13 to 16. But you can also divide up verses 13 to 16 into two smaller parts. That's because the sinful Israelite men stand in the middle between three relationships. Here's what I mean. First, at the end of verse 11, you see the daughter of a foreign god. Secondly, in verse 14, you have another person described in three ways. The wife of your youth, companion, wife by covenant. Thirdly, you see in verse 15, godly offspring. So based on these three relationships, we have three warnings. To put it on a more positive spin, here's how to be loyal to God instead of dealing treacherously with him. One, be 
Beware of the allures of idolatry. Beware of the allures of idolatry. That's verses 10 to 12. Two, be loyal to the vows of matrimony. Be loyal to the vows of matrimony. That's verses 13 to 14. And three, be concerned for the godliness of posterity. Be concerned for the godliness of posterity. That's verses 15 to 16. First, beware of the allures of idolatry. Just as the previous oracle began with rhetorical questions, this one does too. The message proceeds from general to specific, building suspense in the hearers. Eventually, the prophet reveals how Judah has betrayed God through adultery and idolatry. The first two questions in verse 10 remind us that he's the father of all creation, we're the offspring of God. But I also think the third question there moves us past his creation, a creator role. The Lord's a father to his chosen people of Israel in a special way. He said himself in Exodus 4.22, Israel was his firstborn. In Deuteronomy 14.1, Moses reminded the Israelites, you are the children of the Lord your God. But as we saw already, they have forgotten the one who has begotten them. Israel has dishonored, rebelled, and betrayed their father. And we must not minimize the sin of betrayal. See the vocabulary used in verse 11. Dealing treacherously is parallel to abomination. That word abomination is the same word used in Leviticus 20, verse 13, to condemn homosexuality. Also notice how the word profane is juxtaposed with holy. God's beloved nation was supposed to be holy, which means set apart and special, yet now they're profane, made common, made mundane. And there's no hiding this sin. It shows up in all relationships. The Jews have dealt treacherously with God, so they deal treacherously with one another. And their betrayal even reaches back in time, as it were. We saw back in verse 8 that priests have corrupted the covenant of their father, Levi. Similarly, in verse 10, we read that the Israelites have profaned the covenant of the patriarchs. Treachery against the Lord affects everyone. You can also say that their betrayal has no bounds geographically. In verse 11, three names are given. Sin against gods in the capital city of Jerusalem. Pervasive in the royal tribe of Judah. Ubiquitous in the entirety of Israel. Treachery against Yahweh is everywhere. So how did treachery get everyone, everywhere? The answer is simple. The Israelite man went out of bounds with his God because he went out of bounds of his land. These men went there to marry women who worshipped idols. 
They were called daughters of a foreign god or daughters of foreign gods because as we see in Jeremiah 2, 26 to 27, they call wood and stones, you are my father, you gave birth to me. There's no hiding this sin from the Lord who clearly condemned it in the law in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7. There's no safety from judgment just because one is a Jew outwardly. The phrase in the middle of verse 12 needs some explanation. What does Malachi mean by the idolatrous man being awake and aware? Here's how I see it. The conjunction and is better understood as or. The word for aware is better translated as answering. So the entire phrase would be the man who does this being awake or answering. Now imagine with me a scene in Jerusalem. There are, ma- there are uh, watchmen who keeps vigil at night while others sleep. If there's some invasion at hand, those awake would sound the alarm and others would answer. So putting it all together, the Lord of hosts will punish every man, everywhere, who marries a foreign idolater, whether he dwells at the city gates or the city center. God will punish him as he starts the day, pretends like nothing happened, and even dares to enter the temple of the Lord to offer a gift to him. So it's application time. So we as the church must also beware of the allures of idolatry. That last image in verse 12 is convicting. How many of us come to worship on weekends, having given our hearts to other gods? You might object and say, Sung, I did not bow down to any statue this week, I promise. And I sure didn't leave my wife for many years for some Jezebel. Well, that's good. But idolatry is still a temptation that will battle until glory. The only way to avoid it completely would be if we leave the world. Idolatry and idolaters will exist until they're thrown into the lake of fire in the final judgment. So until then, we must keep ourselves from idols. And idolatry is not just some evil out there. It's among the works of the flesh, as we saw in Galatians 5. Idolatry is there when we covet our neighbor's house, land, wife, or anything that's theirs. We need to root out idolatry before it festers in our hearts. Here's one test. In your life, is there some appreciation that is turning into some obsession? Tim Keller once observed that idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. That's a good observation. Is it good to have money? Sure. But is the love of money and greed leading you astray from the faith? Now it's becoming ultimate. Here's a question for myself as a pastor. Is church growth a good thing? Of course it is. But am I compromising the gospel? Ignoring wrath, persecution, discipline. Then it will be becoming ultimate. The men of Malachi's days have gone way past that mark. They've fallen deep into idolatry and it shows. 
They've chosen to be with daughters of foreign gods and leave behind the wives of their youth. And that leads us to the next step to be true to the Lord, be loyal to the vows of matrimony. You'd expect much of what's said in verses 13 to 16 to be directly related to couples and parents. But let me reinforce what I said earlier. If we deal treacherously with God in heaven, we'll deal treacherously with people on earth. If you violate the no other God's command, you'll ignore the one another commands. If I break the first and great commandment, I'll break the second one like it. And it's proven from scriptures that those closest to us are those most hurt by our sins, our sins against God. So naturally, spouses and children suffer most. Now let's see how this plays out as we continue in Malachi 2, 13. We saw in the earlier verses that the men of Israel dealt treacherously with the Lord. Now they do the second thing. They deal treacherously with their wives, deserting them for the daughters of foreign gods. When it says you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, I believe we're talking about the women, grieving divorcees, victims of these idolatrous and adulterous men. How is it that they're said to be covering the altar with the wives' tears? I think it reminds me of 2 Kings 21, verse 16. Just as that evil king Manasseh filled the city of Jerusalem with the blood of the prophets, these evil men filled the altar of Jerusalem with the tears of their wives. So let me give an illustration. So picture with me a typical man of Judah. One week, let's say Monday, he finalizes his divorce papers and leaves his Israelite wife of 20 years. On Wednesday, he marries the younger Canaanite woman. On Friday, he celebrates with his new wife and new in-laws by sacrificing to their gods. Next day, as he's so accustomed to it, he wakes up on Sabbath, walks right up to the Jerusalem temple to bring his gift to the altar. Later that same day, just a few hours pass, and the betrayed woman comes to that same place of worship. She has no means to provide for herself and her children now. Like Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, she's in bitterness of soul, prays to the Lord, and weeps in anguish. If an incompetent priest like Eli noticed the sorrow of a distressed woman, how much more will the compassionate God hear the cries of the abandoned woman? And would God regard the offering of that man? Would he receive it with goodwill from those hands that sacrifice to idols? If there's fire kindled on that altar for him, you might as well say that it's quenched by the tears of his wife. You see how the man questions and minimizes his sin in verse 14? But the Lord was there as witness at that wedding day. How many years ago? That may be. He was the one who has joined together the male and female so that they're no longer two but one flesh. 
And even if they left their parents and their rules of the house, they were still under God and his rules of the house. That man had no right to deal with treacherously and break that covenant with his companion and wife. Now, we may not go as far as betraying our wives like this as men, but how you treat her directly affects your relationship with God. I think of verses like 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, the wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The tears, weeping, and crying of our wives will distort, drown, and deaden our prayers. That's true whether you're approaching the altar of the temple or the throne of grace. Of course, wives are not the only ones who suffer from unlawful divorce. Children suffer as well. The idolatrous adulterer has no regard for this. That leads to the third way to stay devoted to God. Be concerned for the godliness of posterity. Verse 15 is the hardest verse to interpret in Malachi, especially the first half of it. Let me read it again in in its entirety. But did, did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. So here's my take on it. Similar to what we saw in verse 10, we're looking beyond God's creation of humanity and the establishment of marriage in general. We're looking at his special purposes for Israel, accomplished through the family unit. He wanted Israelite men to marry Israelite women, become one, reproduce, and keep the genealogical line going. The remnant, then, refers to God's people of Israel. The spirit is not referring back to Genesis 2-7, when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, I think it's looking forward to the Lord's promise to breathe life into the dry bones to make the house of Israel live again in the end times. We see in Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 37. Until then, the Israelites in Malachi's days must be concerned for the godly offspring. When the husband and father abandons the family for foreign idolaters, the wives and children are in danger. Prosperity and the posterity of the nation are at risk. And beyond Israel and at all times and in all places, God's will and design is that men be providers and protectors of his companion and his seed. This is his plan for family and discipleship. Psalm 145, verse 4 says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. As you see in Deuteronomy 6, the stable homes, not only a nest, it's the school of godliness for children. Home is where the heart is, but there's more to that. Home is where you learn to love God with all your heart. 
Sometimes it's hard for me and Ira to believe that the tiring, mundane, routine acts of changing diapers, bathing the child, and teaching the alphabet, and reading Bible stories, these are what God uses to accomplish his grand purposes. But that's what's taught throughout the Bible and in today's passage. By being committed to God, staying married, raising children, the Israelite set the stage for his promises to be fulfilled in the future. If they marry the daughters of the foreign gods and abandon Yahweh, they'd be trying to tear down that stage. That's why it's worth repeating for emphasis. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. That's why the Lord must bring up over and over again the, to the idolater. Don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Because the godly offspring of Israel must continue, we're told that the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel. If that wasn't clear enough, it says in chapter 2, verse 16, that the Lord hates divorce. We saw the word hate earlier in Malachi in reference to the Edomites, Esau's descendants. When hate is juxtaposed with love, as is the case there, then it's more about choosing one over the other and less about hate and love as emotions. But when hate stands alone, like here, we have the more emotional response against unlawful divorce. That's because divorce was permitted in the law of Moses. That doesn't mean God's pleased with it. He saw men's calloused hearts toward him and their own wives and only allowed divorce under very few conditions. Otherwise, dealing treacherously with your wife would cover one's garment with violence. Here's another prophetic word play. Deal treacherously is related to clothing or covering, etymologically speaking. It's somewhat like the saying today, he got something up his sleeve or they're planning a cover-up. These idolaters scheme secretly, probably for some time now, to leave their families for pagan women. Hold that thought for a second. And recall that the covering of the garment was a beautiful symbol of marriage as the husband cherishes and protects the wife. There's Ruth's words to Boaz, take your maidservant under your wing. In Ezekiel 16 verse 8, there's God's love for Jerusalem. When I looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and enter into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Unlawful divorce would rip off the protected cover and replace it with the garment of violence. Marriage, used so often to illustrate God's love for us, is removed, and the family ruined through divorce. It destroyed the fabric of society. The hardness of men's hearts hurts the wife and the children. So we must try our best to save every marriage for the sake of our present and future. Let me conclude by speaking up to two specific audiences. One, the victim of the unlawful divorce. And two, the unbeliever. 
First, I address those whose situations directly parallel the one in today's passage. Staying close to the text, let's say yours is a case in which a nominally Christian husband or wife now has departed from the faith, loves the present world, and can't stand the sight of you following Jesus. Your former spouse has changed religion, address, partner, and these days, who knows, changed his or her gender too. So you're truly a victim of someone's unfaithfulness to God and to you. You're suffering from both apostasy and infidelity of your spouse. You've been abandoned and now come to the Lord in prayer with tears, weeping and crying. If this applies to you, your broken heart and marital status are not your fault. Now, someone disagree with me, but I go further and say the scriptures allows you to remarry someone in the Lord. Now, you're obligated to forgive the spouse now, who is now your enemy. You should try your best to reconcile. Like I said, try your best to save that marriage. But there's no need to hold your breath in waiting for him or her to end the backsliding and return to you. I bring this up as a sensitive and complicated topic that does immediately relate to this passage, but I'd be glad to speak with you later and answer questions, especially if you've been a victim of unlawful divorce. Now to the unbeliever. I hope this talk demonstrates that we believers are serious about all kinds of sexual sins. We're not only anti-gay, anti-lesbian, anti-transgenderism, we're anti-adultery, anti-pornography, anti-abandonment. But we also believe that the biggest human problem is our betrayal of the Lord. We have human problems because we have a God problem. All of us at one point dealt treacherously with the Lord. We have profaned His holiness. The Bible asks, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? The Bible answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. If those are God's standards, we've all failed. We've broken vows and worshiped false gods. And even those times we try to be religious, We offer gifts that he does not regard or receive. But here's the good news. God the Father didn't leave us in our spiritual mess. Out of love for the lost world, he sent his only begotten son. Jesus Christ, he's the perfect groom to imperfect sinners like you and me. It's a match made in heaven only because God's Son who comes from heaven is above all. Yet the one who is above all died for all. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. He took the punishment of sin and hell that we deserve. He who had had done no violence suffered violence. He who is one with the Father was forsaken by God. 
He died and rose again from the dead on the third day. He proved himself to be alive and ascended to heaven. Jesus went through all this so that we may be at his marriage supper as his bride. All that's required to be there is repentance and faith in Christ alone. Turn away from false gods. Turn away from yourself. Turn to Jesus. There's no dowry or price demanded for his love. Jesus is yours by grace alone, not a works. And as we trust and wait for Christ, we're betrothed to him. Our job is to be faithful to him in the gospel we believe until his return. So let's make the lyrics of our final song our prayer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy course of love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for promises that we sing and we read, that you do hold us fast, and that we can underneath our everlasting arms. Lord, uh, we know that we have hearts that are prone to wander. As one theologian said, our hearts are factories of idols. And that manifests in all kinds of ways, in the way we treat our wives, our husbands, our children, it's, there's no hiding the fact that we struggle with loving you with all our hearts, strength, mind, and soul. So we repent, and we claim the promises of forgiveness. And we ask that this week, that we would love you and serve you above all. That we stay faithful and true and loyal to you instead of dealing treacherously with you. And we thank you that there's grace and mercy found in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.